want to chat about... Oh, you want to chat? I don't think that this is the correct format for that. I'm pretty sure this is not a great format for chatting. Oh, okay. I'll sit in silence and you sit in silence and whoever breaks first gets to have a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The prize is a podcast. (laughs) The prize is that you have to talk all the time and be super informed. Oh, prize or, or, or is that the curse? Like, is the winner... Are you calling our podcast a curse because I want to be offended, but it's kind of cool. I'm well. I think I did curse our podcast at one point, so I'm calling the need to talk all the time and constantly be informed. I mean, it's not like we didn't choose the easy thing, you know. Like we write a full book report every week and feel like we need to spend that week learning every possible minute detail of the thing that we're learning that week. So, as much as I genuinely love this. We didn't choose the book report life. The book report life chose us. Honestly, though, I mean, considering we were in like all of the advanced English classes together since we were wee babies. I have a friend who was like, wow, you guys are really intellectual about things. You guys just really go for that (laughs) research. Pardon me. It's all we have. It's all we have. I didn't know what to say. I was like, well, what else is there? Yeah, the other option is to be clever, and we don't have that, so we're just going <laughs> to do the research. I'm not right. witty or clever. I'll let you be witty and clever all day long. You're Ooh, a lovely, no, too lovely, much sassy, pressure. smart I'm lady. Out. I can right? never be funny again. That's the thing. That's the thing. It's like, as soon as someone says it, it's like, I've literally never had a funny thought once in my life. So, funny's out, because we're not reliable enough for that. And the best and... part is, this is not not a visual medium, so our looks are out of the equation, which is delightful. <laughs> It's such, it's great. It's great. Like, I'm literally wearing a baggy t-shirt that says, can I pet your dog? And I don't have to stress about that. Although I have to say, you guys can't see it, but Rowan looks amazing right now. She's Thank like you. dressed to the nines in in quarantine version, which means she's put together a very cute but normal outfit for non-quarantine times. Right. So it was, it's Sunday right now in recording time. It's pod uh, farmer's market day. And we all get very dressed up because it's the only time that we ever go out into the world. And one of my friends told me I looked like Jane Seberg. And I, I was done. I was like, Rowan, I don't know who that is. Oh, wow. Okay, so your homework assignment (laughs) is to watch Breathless with Jane Seberg. It's a French film. Enjoy. Okay. Okay. Well, at least it, it makes so she's got a very French ri- vibe with like a black and white striped shirt with a little red bandana tied very <laughs> adorably around her neck. So I can see that. Do you remember? I know Amelie. That's a French movie. I know. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is a little more, little more grounded in realism. This film. What, then Amelie, the most realistic movie of all time. Ah, yes. <laughs> Do you remember in middle school when I accidentally, on purpose, cut my hair so short I didn't even have an inch of hair? Oh, was that middle school? Yeah, it was. It just lasted for a really long time accidentally on purpose. Yeah. That is what Jane Seberg's hair looks like in this film. Mm -hmm. Only, of course, she's a movie star, so it's a whole different thing. It's not a middle schooler with braces. Fair. No. Fair. Uh, although I, I think there's nothing in this world more elegant than a middle schooler with braces thinking that they 
Like, you know how in middle school you'd put on, like, a dress and you're like, literally, if I ran into my celebrity crush, they would have to fall in love with me. I look so good right now. No, no. You know, like, that middle school confidence where you probably were like, yes, I do look like her. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. My middle school confidence outfit was something with fishnets. It was always something with fishnets, which I can't honestly say I've evolved that much. Mine was something from Hollister. Oh, mm. oh, I remember Hollister Tracy. And it wasn't something I bought myself. It was a gift that uh, a family friend of mine who was like a few years older than us had given me because he worked at Hollister and it was like a blue lacy cami and a tan long sleeve shirt. But like, I just thought I looked so good. And this is pre, what I'm going to very generously call pre glow up when I had my braces and my glasses and my no bangs with my hair parted down the middle. Before I got the look that is, I kid you all not, the same look I've had since I was like 15. You're not wrong. And okay, so you've glown. You're up. I've done both of those things and I would not put them together. But yes, I've glown and I'm up. (laughs) (laughs) You are in fact taller and there is now highlighter. I do not want to say that I have achieved my glow up because I feel like if this is it... I'll be bummed. I don't want to limit myself if the cosmos have in store perhaps more glow and more up. Wishful thinking. So I see, yeah, I so see where you're coming from. I love the optimism. I do feel like I have peaked that curve. And I'm gonna like I'm gonna try to just gracefully ride it downwards. <laughs> On that note, let's oh, okay, this is the perfect segue. You know what? Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. Tracy, say your name. And I'm Tracy Harrison. Rowan is is directing me forward to continue. Yes, yes, yes. And this is the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. But Tracy, here's Uh why this is a perfect segue. We have to talk about, we got goodie bags Uh, of things to make us pretty. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Oh, that was a good transition. Well done. Thank you. I didn't doubt you. I just didn't know where it was going. Thank you. I appreciate the, the blind faith. Always. The point is this. We have we can officially say this is the best job ever because an actual company that actually exists sent us goodie bags. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, It makes every book report worth it. Uh, Every single book report I've done, including the ones not for this podcast, are now worth it because we got got goodie bags filled with. Okay, I'm going to take a step back because I'm so excited. So this is probably a really good time for us to announce announce that this is the beginning of our three-part series called Stories from the Sea, which is sponsored by White Light Productions Sea Glass Jewelry. And that is what our goodie bags were. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm sorry. I'll let you talk. I'm literally like shaking. Oh, no, I was just going <laughs> to echo you. If, if people didn't hear it the first time Tracy said it, we have a sponsored episode because we're big adults we're people now. <laughs> we're, we're actually this podcast is like a pot like you're listening to a real podcast <laughs> i think they can tell because it's on an app somewhere but yeah i know but like nope i got no follow-up i'm not witty see this is why we're intellectual it's because we're not clever but it finally paid off it's like when the nerd girl in the movie who was hot the whole time takes off her glasses and is suddenly able to be seen as hot by the yeah. lead man 
And then she achieves all of her dreams, except in our version, she's still a nerd. She can still wear her glasses if she wants to. And her dreams are not a man. They are, in fact, fancy jewelry. jewelry. (laughs) (laughs) So White Light Productions, Sea Glass Jewelry, sent us over a selection of handpicked pieces, I guess to make us look good during quarantine, but in in all seriousness, we were both so giddy the moment we opened them. We got on a video call. I was really excited right away because they use recycled paper packaging in all of their um, gift bags, which have like rose petals in them pressed in it. Yeah. So it's, they were gorgeous. Uh, it's, it's classy. It's gorgeous. It makes you feel good in like both the it just makes you feel good and also makes you feel good about the environment way. Right. And... So we learned that they use recycled art glass, they use harmony metal, which is actually recycled sterling silver, which limits Mm -hmm. mining, and limiting mining is one of the best things that we can possibly do as humans to protect the environment. Yeah, and and I just have, I know a lot of people in my life who are really sensitive to metals, so they have to use sterling silver, but to know that it can be recycled sterling silver, it just... I don't know, it takes a weight off my chest because I try to always go with the pure metals in case my sisters ever want to borrow my jewelry and a couple of them are sensitive to metals. I said on the call to Rowan because I was so excited, I grew up going to the Jersey Shore and the Outer Banks and those houses are always decorated with like bowls of sea glass or like jars of sea glass (laughs) in it. (laughs) And as soon as I saw the jewelry, I just like flashed back to those happy times of like, sitting in the beach houses, going to the beach, sitting and watching the waves, like hunting for sea glass on the shores. And it just like brought me that summer joy in the middle of autumn quarantine. Interestingly, I'm very contrary to that. And summer is not my season. So my version of the beach is a rocky shore where I'm just constantly hunting for shells. I'm the person that fills the bowls for the rental right. houses in Jersey. <laughs> so getting actual brightly colored sea glass pieces to wear really satisfied just my my crow mentality. We've talked about it. <laughs> we have talked about it. Well, and it's just so cool because they also have, they don't have pure sea glass pieces. Some of them have little charms. So you can like have a charm that goes with your personality and, and sea glass, like the both together. It's just beautiful. Yeah, so if you want to be fancy crows like us. <laughs> Collect um, all the shiny things. All the shiny, all the sea glass. White Light Productions was kind enough to make us a special code. It's WFFALL10. And if you use it on their website, you can get 10% off your order. That's WFFALL10. So head over to seaglass.us, that's S-E-A-G-L-A-S-S, and you guys can use our special code and uh, hopefully get yourself some presents also. Yeah. Never too early to stop start shopping for your friends and family for the holidays. I'm someone who, you know, has a crow mentality, so all year long when I see something that I think a friend or family member would like, I just, like, buy it and store it away. And then by the time Mm. their birthday or, like, a winter holiday comes around, I'm locked and loaded, baby. I got it ready to go. We do that in my family, too. We call it the gift closet. There's a – we always have a specific closet in every household that's where the gifts get stashed. Otherwise, you don't find them. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> the problem is that I live with someone who I exchange gifts with. Well, two people, but one's my twin. So our birthday was like sneaking stuff away as soon as it came in. So I had the gift closet was hidden away in my room. My gift closet. Hers was somewhere else. We live so far, Tracy, you and I, that I could have your gift in frame in this call and you wouldn't even notice. Same to you. Given my... I'm pointing to my loft um, is from every angle very beautifully decorated except the one Rowan only sees in the call, which is my shame corner of uh, stuff I didn't know where else to put. Shame corner. It's my shame corner. The contrast that's going on right now of us being cool enough to get presents and then also having shame corners. (laughs) Listen, we're human, all right? Some people never forget. Everyone in your life is a human. Everyone in your life can achieve great things and also have a shame corner. It's who we are. I'm not pretending to be someone who doesn't have more than one shame corner in their house, but I do own a house. So... You get both sides. You know, I'm, I, I've reached the heights of I've bought a house, and now I fill it with things that shame me when people see it on video chat. You know, we always wear really big headphones when we record, but maybe next week, I don't know, I'll figure it out so you can see me wearing my sea glass earrings that'll just bedazzle you so you won't be able to notice, Tracy, that I'm always in my closet recording. There we go. <laughs> I'll do the same thing. I'll I'll make sure my ring light is on and super bright, and then it'll just it'll sparkle off the jewelry. Sweatpants and sea glass, baby. That's our oh new vibe. Oh my god, vibe. my new aesthetic. Yes, sweatpants, <laughs> sea glass, super soft t-shirts. <laughs> I lost it a little bit at the end there, but it is. Listen, it's what I am. Okay, Rowan <laughs> saw me the other day on a video chat where for the first time I'd actually put on makeup, and she was like. You look so good. And I was like, I I just showered. That's, I, wasn't, that's... <laughs> I wasn't trying to be that guy, though. No, you were being so genuine. You were just like, you look beautiful. You were be- like, I really made my day because I actually did put on makeup and put effort in. But I was just like, wow, that's really hammering home that I don't shower or do anything before I record with Rowan, huh? That's a real <laughs> friendship there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have another graceful transition. But our first sponsored episode for our Stories from the Sea series is going to be the two of us exploring the oceanic gods. Put gods in quotation marks real quick, because I know we said we were going to do gods. Mine's only kind of a god in the sense that it's awe-inspiring. All right. We're doing two (laughs) awe-inspiring figures from the sea. Powerful figures, boss figures. I go go powerful, awe-inspiring, larger than life would would work as well. I really have no idea what you're doing this week, and I am racking my brain. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see. This never happens. (laughs) <laughs> I did. I like chose something and then last minute was like, I want to do what I want to do and then changed it and didn't knew what Rome was doing. So didn't tell her. Sorry. <laughs> Even though I'm not doing a God, we still want to talk about the ocean because that's what inspired this because we are being <laughs> sponsored by <laughs> White Light Productions Seagrass Jewelry. We did want to talk about the ocean. And so uh, I just wanted to say that 
The world's ocean covers 70% of the planet and makes up a shocking 97% of the Earth's water while generating 50 to 80% of the oxygen upon which we all rely. Still, more than 80% of the ocean is unmapped or unexplored. Rightfully so. I won't explore it. I'm not going to do it. I want nothing to do with it. I won't go down there. But the seas influence weather, global temperatures, provide food, transport, commerce, resources, and sustain all life on Earth. But frankly, we know so little about it. All I can tell you is that I love to watch David Attenborough, and there are some great deep sea documentaries by him. But that's as far as my personal knowledge goes. Well, that might be why the sea is such a vast source of inspiration for storytellers. Not only do we rely on it and love it, as Tracy said, we also fear it. We also fear it. We really don't want to touch anything that's like super deep down. But I do like to play in the on the shoreline. The species that live in the ocean are about as far from humanoid as you can really get. You know, you look at a tiger face and you're like, oh, it's frustrated because you see a human face there. You're yeah. not getting that as much from a cephalopod. Cephalopod. Ce- cephalopod. Hey, cephalopod, I learned how to say that, uh, and that might hint as to my... Shoot, I could have sworn a mere five minutes ago I knew how to pronounce that word. (laughs) Let me tell you real quick before we jump into the rest of our stuff, the amount of Googling of how to pronounce X I had to do this week, I went, and I guess, spoiler alert, I don't know, you're going to hear what I'm going to talk about, it's not a spoiler. I went from Old Norse to Modern Norse to Latin, German, and French. Oh, I know what your story is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. I probably just blew out the mic. Everyone, I am a genius. I am a genius. She's brilliant. Your hints are cephalopod and a lot of languages. Right, right. I don't want to ruin this moment by saying what I think it is because it could be wrong, but you're doing the kraken. I'm doing the Kraken, baby. <laughs> oh, I'm almost mad. That was such a good choice. I, I I had picked a god I'd never heard of, and I was just like, I could jump into this. I could go. But the Kraken has my heart, man. The Kraken has my heart. And I just, I wanted to enjoy my research and really scratch that itch to learn more about the Kraken. I'm going to say it. The Kraken is definitely an old god of the sea right thank you i i knew you would i knew you'd get it i knew you'd get where i was coming from where i was like it feels right like it's something that was it feels like it's an old god that like we could someday reawaken you know oh yes and the kraken of my upbringing of my imagination is so vast it could take a carnival cruise ship and snap it with its mere, mere smallest tentacle without even batting one of its massive eyeballs. So, truly, if you imagine that sitting deep, deep in the deep, dark cold of the ocean, there's no way that creature is not godlike. There's just, it, it Thank no. you. I'm realizing now, as soon as we're talking about something godlike sitting in the bottom of the ocean, I should have done Cthulhu. And I did miss the mark on that one. But I love a good Kraken, man. You know what? It's not even your turn yet, Tracy. <laughs> Back up. 
it's my turn because frankly, I have not gone first for I think three episodes and I'm putting my foot down. I love that you're like, I'm putting my foot down when it's like, I'm like holding the door open. It's like you're having a temper tantrum in front of an open door. <laughs> that's Well, that's the thing. You know, you get the instant gratification <laughs> for your tantrum. Uh, I could have yeah. gone first last week. I chose to go second. You know what? I am I'm can only blame myself. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall of the Willing and Fable podcast. I'm going first. Gosh darn it. And I am covering... A goddess who goes by many names. She is most widely known as Sedna or Sana. She is the Inuit goddess of the sea, all of its creatures, and the underworld, mother of the deep, old woman who lives in the sea, or the big bad woman. Oh my god, I love her already. I found this story while hunting for other stories way back and i put Mm -hmm. a pin in that tracy and i have a spreadsheet where we put pins and things we want to do later you guys we love spreadsheets i know you've heard it before but we love spreadsheets so we have a spreadsheet of the stories we're actually doing and then a backup spreadsheet of all the stories we could do or are interesting and what inspired creating that second spreadsheet was this exact story. This 100% this exact story. This was the first story on the spreadsheet because what basically happened is I found her. I went, oh, gosh, I want to cover this story. What if I don't remember at the moment that I need it because I'm so stressed out? And, or worse, what if Tracy takes the story? It's not like that, guys. Ooh. It's not like that. <laughs> it's not like that at all. <laughs> But we do have a spreadsheet in which we put stories that are up for grabs, stories that we would dream of doing if possible. It's it's exciting. So when we got our sponsored stories from our the sponsored episodes, <laughs> we're never going to drop that. You're going to hear it at least six more times this episode. Maybe this, next week will be cooler. I can't promise it. This might be the coolest we ever are. That's the thing. <laughs> this Is this our peak? And then it's just a graceful <laughs> downward curve? Exactly. Okay. You're telling Uh, me about the Inuit goddess. All right. So before I even get into her amazing story, I want to specify here that while some sources will attribute this story to Eskimos, that is not the name I am going to use for those people whose ancestors crossed the Bering Land Bridge at some point between 6000 BC and 2000 BC. While it was once widely used... Many who live in the Arctic now consider Eskimo a derogatory term. It was widely used by non-native colonizers of the region and is associated with racism, not the least reason being that it was thought to have come about originally to mean eater of raw meat, which at the time was associated with barbaric behavior. According to NPR, quote, mid-century anthropologists suggested that the word came from the Latin word excommunicati, meaning the excommunicated ones, because the native people of the Canadian Arctic were not Christian. But now there's a new theory. According to the Alaska Native Language Center at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, linguists believe that the word Eskimo actually came from the French word Eskimo, meaning one who nets snowshoes. Okay. At least a less rude origin like i feel like it to be like you're not part of our christian religion so we're not gonna 
we're going to just call you already excommunicated or calling it eater of raw meat to associate with bar- like barbaric behavior. Right. Like, I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying of all of those, I choose the one that's just like, they make net snowshoes. Like, look at them go. Look at those people making those snowshoes. Good job. Yeah, I'm going to double back and say that the French word, I think, very likely was pronounced Eskimo or something yeah. similar. Let, But I wanted to emphasize that it's clearly not spelled the same. Let that moment kind of give you a hint of uh, how much research I did on pronunciation, which actually was extensive, and still how much I might not succeed. Oh, both of us. Both of us. Never expect us to pronounce anything correctly. You know that. You know better than I know. What do you, who do you think you were talking to? We're, we're intellectual, not smart. Come on. But we are sponsored. All right. So <laughs> Eskimo is sometimes considered an inoffensive term to those native to Alaska due to the word Inuit not being a part of the native language in that area. And while some folks all over still identify themselves using the word Eskimo, people get to call themselves whatever they want. And we're just going to stick with Inuit for the purposes of this episode. Much of my information today is going to feature Inuit who live in what is now Canada due to Sedna's association with Canada the first time I was introduced to the story and the information I learned this week about Canada's Inuit citizens. That is not to say, however, that the version of the story that I tell today is the definitive version of any of the many Inuit groups that tell her tale, in fact... All of today's information is only a small fraction of the history and mythology that exists in the Arctic region of the world. Traditionally, a hunter-gatherer society that moved camps based on the seasons, as of 2016, about 73% of all Inuit in Canada live in Inuit Nunangit which is the Inuit homeland that includes the land, water, and ice found in the Arctic region. It makes up 35% of Canada's landmass and 50% of its coastline. This phrase may also be used in reference to parts of Alaska and Greenland. Many consider the 11th century Norse explorers to be the first outsiders to encounter Inuit peoples. Of course, they were only the beginning to a range of people, especially from Europe, who came to the region for whaling, trading, exploration, science colonization, and to spread Christianity. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, as for the land that would eventually become part of Canada, it seems that the Canadian federal government, quote, largely ignored Inuk people until a court decision in 1939 ruled that, quote, they were a federal responsibility. Inuit were still not subject to the Indian Act, and Inuit children were still forced to attend residential schools that forced assimilation and were sometimes incredibly far from their families. But by the late 1960s, political organization against government restrictions on traditional lands and assimilative policies led to the creation of what would now become known as the ITK, or Inuit Taparit Kanatami, the National Representational Organization Protecting and Advancing the Rights and Interests of Inuit in Canada. 
Officially founded in 1971, this organization advocates for all Inuit living in 53 communities throughout Inuit Nanangit. To quote ITK, whose website is a wealth of information, they were, I would argue, my main source for this episode. Quote, Above all, the story of Inuit is about how we as a culture are able to live in balance with the natural world. This is a story that we must begin to tell for ourselves. Unfortunately, until now, most of the research on our culture and history has been done by individuals who come from outside our culture. Since the information that these individuals collected was seldom made available to us, the image held by much of the outside world about who we are is usually someone else's creation, not ours. It will take time to change this situation, and we as Inuit are certainly prepared to work cooperatively with those who have devoted their professional lives to the study of our culture. In the meantime, we will reinterpret the information gathered by others to help us speak about ourselves. I really, really wanted to include that quote in this episode Because until I learned how to search for the information I needed, Google did not give me firsthand information about Mm -hmm. Inuit culture. And it took finding the ITK website and refining my own ability to search to just learn the basics that I'm oh, touching I, on. Absolutely. I remember the same thing. We talked about the same thing when I did the research on the Kwakwakiwaka. It was like I found their website, which thank God it was also just a wealth of information. But aside from that, Google just did not want to show me anything. And it took a lot of finagling of the searches to get anywhere. And even then, so much of it was just like one source and then every other website literally copying and pasting that onto their own. Yes, that was a huge thing. And, you know, we're spoiled a lot of times by, you know, you can find information about Greek mythology oh God, every you know which way. Do you know how easy it was to find 150,000 articles about the Kraken? It was so easy. Right. So easy. Which is not to say that any person is responsible for putting information about their own life or culture on the internet if that's not what they want. But it is... Something that I think Tracy and I talk about a lot on our off time and was a huge part of this episode. So I feel like that quote really embodies. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it's 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 exactly said it's not anyone's responsibility and it's not a problem that can be solved easily. It just is a really, really, really small thing that highlights a bigger problem of the way that we as a society think of and search for things. Google isn't choosing to hide this. It's showing what is, it assumes to be the most relevant, what is is the most searched for, what mm-hmm. is the most clicked on. And we just throw these things to the side. I mean, it's just like when you think of a god of the sea, you think of Poseidon. That's the first thing your mind goes to. It's the first thing Google shows you. And it's a, it's a symptom of a bigger issue. And exactly. Not one that we can solve, but one that we absolutely want to highlight. And the frequency with which you and I yell that 
mythology is not only Greek mythology. Oh my god, I love Greek mythology, but seriously, Google, stop it. <laughs> like, I love it. I love I love Greek mythology. We came into this with, like, we love mythology, we love Greek mythology, and getting to do this podcast and open our eyes to the rich, rich world of mythologies of so many other cultures has been such a benefit, but it's, like, making us stomp our foot in front of the closed door of Google saying, show us all the other cool stuff, not just, and it's not just Google. I mean, I shouldn't highlight Google, but the internet in general, people just, these things get more buried and, and they're so amazing. They're so amazing. They are just as rich and exciting and interesting as any Greek story. But when you look up lists of, of ancient sea gods, you get like, four and three of them are from the greco-roman world which again great source of mythology love greek and roman mythology but come on there's more out there my other frustration is neo-pagan websites writing about cultures that have nothing to do with them as if they are the definitive source and then my own inability to crack Google's code that would get me perfectly easily to the information I need sends me to those websites. It is my personal, <laughs> my personal battle. I mm -hmm. just... See, I got really, really, really good at Googling, like, real specific stuff. Any software developers out there will agree with me. I tell my family I got a degree in Google with a minor in Stack Overflow. Like, I didn't learn how to program in school. I learned how to Google the answers in school. Mm -hmm. So my, my Google search abilities have exponentially skyrocketed thanks to my IT computer science degree, which is a weird, weird thing to help with a mythology podcast. Interestingly, my work, which is usually in film and theater and, and story in general, I have learned in making this podcast has trained Google that when I search for things, I often want definitions, I want pronunciations, I want I want stories, I want fiction based off it. And as we've worked, I've I've taught Google that I also need firsthand sources. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Thank you for letting me get on a soapbox. Uh, I, I needed to get that off my chest in a way I didn't realize I did. So um, anyway, back to you telling me all about your story. So circling back, due to the decline of use of Inuktitut, the Inuit language, ITK and the federal and territorial governments of Canada began the process of including language programs in schools. Though it is oft mentioned that the Canadian government was interested in the programs as a means to further teach English, while the goal of ITK was to promote Inuktitut. ITK says, quote, In our culture, we do not divide the past from the present, so we do not like to use terms such as prehistory. Our history is simply our history. And we feel that the time has come for us as Inuit to take more control over determining what is important and how it should be interpreted. 
To be of value, our history must be used to instruct our young and to inform all of us about who we are as Inuit in today's world. We do not want our history to confine us to the past. Our past is preserved and explained through the telling of stories and the passing of information from one generation to the next through what is called the oral tradition. Inuit recognize the importance of maintaining the oral tradition as a part of our culture and way of learning. At the same time, we realize that there are other ways to understand the past through activities such as archaeology and the study of historical documents. Both ways of knowing must now be used by Inuit, and it is our elders and our schools that will provide the necessary tools. I also wanted to include that quote. You guys don't understand. The ITK website is just the best and the whoever is writing for it perhaps the many people i wish they would write for our podcast um, <laughs> open invitation <laughs> <laughs> the way that that quote simply captures the idea that north american cultures specifically that are not christian do not only exist in the past mm is something that is another one of my personal soapboxes because I find on the internet and also in discussions that I'm involved in that there are such a small number of religions and their surrounding cultures or cultural ways of life that people believe are practiced today or are relevant today and that is just patently untrue. And when we are when we're researching, so much of what we research does take place in the past. Some of the cultures we cover no longer exist today. Yeah, but, absolutely. But many of them, one hundred thousand percent, are living, breathing practices and cultures and stories that are still changing and growing. And I wanted to highlight that in particular with this story because it is part of a culture that is not, you know, I always think of the big three or, well, maybe more. But, you know, we have Christianity, we have Judaism, we have Islam. And then everybody sort of stops looking. Yeah, well, and then there's there's Buddhism, but that's, I think that that can get, I've, I'm sorry to say watered down, but I think there are just some ways that, like, Westerners have taken it and, like, they pick and choose a little bit. Not all the time, and some people are very devoted, but... Are you kidding me? I, I live I, in Los Angeles. I know exactly what you're talking about. It, yeah. You know the broad just, heading of spiritualism, which is sometimes yeah. utilized very well and in other times not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm not going to go into it any further, but... I am squeezed next to you on that soapbox, cheering you on. Yeah, it's our it's our tiny little crusade. <laughs> crusade. That was perhaps the wrong uh, phrase. You know, for it's that. an interesting word. Interesting word for it. Uh, <laughs> I would say delightfully ironic. Oh, total segue. Among other forms of visual art, the Inuit also practice a specific form of throat singing. Fun fact about me, I love throat singing. Yes! 
I took a music class in college that was like world music. And there's a couple of cultures whose music I'm like obsessed with. And the idea of throat singing is one of them. I love once you once I learned how to listen to throat singing and what Mm -hmm. you're listening for. Oh, my God, you guys, it's so good. And I just want to really quickly recommend a band that probably all of you already know about. uh, But it's The Who, H-U. And it's a Mongolian folk slash like power metal band. So they bring in the traditional folk and throat singing methods with like power metal backgrounds. Check out their song Yuva Yuva You. It's on Spotify, YouTube. I recommend watching the official music video because every single one of them is cooler than I'll ever be in my entire life. And combined, it's just like mind blowing how amazing they are. And you'll feel so cool listening to it. But anyway, that's just my little, I'll put it on our recommendations page on our website. Love their music. That's really neat. And I know it's different than, than Inuit throat singing, but the, I, just the idea of throat singing triggered my memory of loving the who. Well, the reason I brought it up, I read that in the Inuit practice, apparently it is often, though not always, performed by two women who, Ooh. yeah, I thought that was really interesting. So I pulled up a couple videos while I was writing just because, you know, it's nice to listen to different music. And... I was I was blown away. I love music. 10 out of 10. <laughs> go yes. go YouTube all of these things. On another note, as someone who is not sporty, the Arctic Winter Games held every 2 years features high kick and kneel jump, which are traditional Inuit sports. Both of those things sound like I would hurt myself. <laughs> oh, I know I'd hurt myself. I I just reading them, I'm kind of like, ooh. Ouch. Despite various land claims allowing for a level of self-government, today Inuit face overcrowding and the health issues that accompany that as well. In the Cape Thompson, Alaska region in particular, 15,000 pounds of nuclear waste dumped by the Atomic Energy Commission has led to an increase in cancer in the Inuit community. Among Inuit youth, death by suicide is at a much higher rate than the rest of Canada. My story today of Sedna, goddess of the sea. There is a story told when the fires are high and the nights are cold of the goddess who dwells in the sea and the creatures that swim at her beck and call. They say that woman down there beneath the sea She wants to hide the seals from us. These hunters in the dance house, they cannot mend matters. They cannot mend matters. Into the spirit world will go I, where no humans dwell. Set matters right will I. Set matters right will I. In a time back before the eldest memory, in a time when the ice was cold and the waters wild, there lived a man and his wife, He was a skilled hunter and was able to take care of his family, especially his only daughter, Sedna. The man bedecked her in fine furs, and she was known as the most beautiful young woman in the village, perhaps the most beautiful woman as far as anyone could travel. She had long, raven-black hair that she kept in beautiful braids, and her bright eyes were as clever as her sharp wit. She was so beautiful that men from far and wide sought her hand in marriage. 
But Sedna was happy with her loving family, and she found fault with every suitor who came to the family's igloo. One man was too brash, another too soft-spoken, the next a stinking mess, but still another too concerned with appearances. It got so that her father began to think she would never marry, and so his temper grew. One day, a new Anuk, a man no one had ever seen before, came to the village asking for Sedna's hand in marriage. The handsome stranger promised to care for Sedna, provide her with clothes, blankets, and plenty of food to eat. But Sedna was wary, despite the man's sweet words. In fact, even more than any suitor before, she vehemently declined and stayed as far away from the strange man as she could manage. But that night, by the fire... Her father made a deal with the man. In exchange for a large number of fish, he would give his daughter to the stranger to be done with the whole ordeal of marriage and suitors. That night, with the stars hanging high and crisp above their home, the hunter poisoned his daughter into a deep, impenetrable sleep. He carried her into his umyak and navigated out to a distant island where the man requested he leave the new bride. When Sedna finally awoke the next morning, her father was gone, and she was lying in a massive nest. In a flutter of feathers, the stranger revealed himself to be a birdman, tall and gawking, clacking his sharp beak in satisfaction. Sedna growled her distaste at this spirit of the air and turned her back to him, trapped as she was high above the ice and the sea. So they lived for a time, the birdman proud of his new possession, the beautiful young girl that attracted all his avian friends to come and squawk, and Sedna, trapped and sad, tired of eating only fish and lying among her husband's feathers, grew angrier by the day. Though it felt like an eternity to the young girl, not long after he left her, Sedna's father decided to paddle out to the island to check on his daughter. When he arrived, the hunter was shocked and horrified to see the undisguised birdman, and Sedna pleaded with him to take her home. Enraged by the trick and long since finished with the fish from the trade, the hunter fought and killed the birdman. Though the suitor was a massive spirit of the skies, Sedna's father's skill was legendary and he quickly defeated the wretched husband with a few bloody slashes. The hunter ran with Sedna to the Umyak and paddled away from the island as fast as the current would allow. But the birdman's friends, horrified by the murder, flew after the boat that tossed uselessly in the turbulent waters. Though one creature might not defeat the hunter alone... The birds of the island 
flocked above the pair as one force, flapping their wings with such ferocity that they created a massive, violent storm. The renowned hunter felt fear for the first time. He was certain that the raining water would fill the boat or the waves would toss him into the sea and he would drown in the water's icy clutches. No, this was not how his life was meant to end, he was certain. In a hunt by an enemy, but not in a deadly storm with birds reaching at every moment to tear his head from his body and harsh rain flaying his skin from his form. As quickly as the thought entered his mind, the hunter threw Sedna overboard. He hoped that by leaving his daughter to the birds, they would allow his boat safe passage. But Sedna would not be left in the freezing ocean. She gripped to the edge of her father's boat as hard as she could and would not let go. With wild eyes, her father hacked off his daughter's fingers. As they fell into the ocean, and the young girl's blood mixed with the water, they turned into the first seals. Still, through her tears and her bleeding, Sedna managed to keep her hold on the boat. Again, the hunter brought his blade high and hacked at the girl whom he raised and cared for her whole life long. He severed her hands, which fell into the sea and became the first walruses. Knowing nothing but pain and desperation, Sedna tried again to climb into her father's boat. She could not understand the cause of her misery, as her mind could not fathom a world in which her father would harm her. As she struggled and raised herself up onto the edge of the boat with the remainder of her strength, her crying eyes met her father's crazed look. With a crack of thunder, he swung his blade again. He needn't have crippled the young girl further, as the realization that her father would kill her himself caused Sedna's strength to give way, tossing her into the violent waves but her severed forearms fell into the ocean first, transforming into the first whales. She sank down and down into the black water, the image of the birds rushing at her father's boat wavering away in the inky blackness. She had no strength to swim, and her tears mingled with the salty water so that she could not tell if she was crying or drowning. There, at the bottom of the sea, she found herself far from the father who wronged her. The animals formed of her body weaved around her in comfort, tangling her once neat braids into the black ocean's depths. She imagined so often that she was a fish that at times it seemed she was half of one as she swam but she didn't concern herself with her form as the horrible humans were far away, and the life of the sea loved her all the same. She became a vengeful goddess, harboring in her heart a deep anger for the people of the land and an unabiding love for the animals born of her suffering. 
This is the beginning of Sedna's rule of the seas and the underworld. Time passed, and the winds calmed and the seas softened, or so it is said. Inuit people cared for the land and the ocean, appeasing Sedna with songs as they traveled. With each new season, they would leave for her pieces of the liver of the first sea mammal killed during a hunt. When these efforts did not provide the villages with an abundant hunt, the Angakok, or shaman, would visit her in a trance, or transform into a fish and swim to the bottom of the sea. There, they listened to the story of those who had wronged her as they combed and braided Sedna's hair. Perhaps she enjoyed it because, after the loss of her fingers, she cannot manage combing it herself. Perhaps she simply appreciates the kindness and care. Either way, when her wrath is quelled and she is happy, Sedna untangles the animals of the sea from her hair so that Inuit may have a bountiful hunt. The birds fly overhead, and the fish swim down below, and gathering by the fire with loved ones is some remedy for the loneliness one goddess carries for all people. So her story is told, and told again, so that Inuit remember the goddess Sedna, who lives in the depths of the sea. I had only heard the very, very, very little bits of that story before. Like, I knew there was a story of a goddess who became a goddess because she drowned after her fingers were cut off after she was trying to hold on to a boat. I did not know anything about the Birdman. I didn't know that it was her own father who did it, trying to save his own life. And I didn't know about the, the hair and the fact that she kind of keeps the creature safe within her hair. And it's interesting that she, when she's happy, lets them go and, and be hunted, kind of balancing that nature of caring for the people and caring for her own children. We got a lot to talk about. All right. First, before I proceed any further, I want to say I found the poem that I included at the top of my story. It's actually a song. And it is attributed to a telling by author and filmmaker James Houston and his first encounter with the story from Inuit. And this version of the story is copy-pasted all over the internet. It is include that uh, song is included in kind of one of the definitive internet versions mm, of that tale. Yeah, that makes sense. And he tells it very well. And in his version of the story, he describes an experience uh, with a grandmother who sings that song and uses the tale of Sedna to keep her grandchildren away from a dangerous part of the coast by scaring them. Mm -hmm. And he also points out that sometimes that story is told in two parts over two nights, which I thought was very interesting. I love that. So there are many versions of the story of Sedna, which, of course, is true of many oral traditions. So I love them all so much, and it was so hard. I know. That's so hard when you have to, like, pick. Sometimes I combine as many as I can into one and make one Franken story. 
I did pull elements from different tellings. Uh, but let me just tell you about some other options because every version of this tale is magnificent. Okay, so in some versions of the story, she is the giant daughter of the creator god Anguta. Many versions feature marriages with various creatures, uh, birds, dogs, sometimes a man who is both. Ooh, bird dog man. Yes. One of my <laughs> other favorite versions of this tale involves a... Her family is asleep in their igloo. And a man comes up and asks for shelter. And they say, great, awesome, come sleep with all of us. And then they wake up in the morning and only animal tracks are leaving the igloo. And Sedna's father goes, oh no, that was actually my lead dog in disguise. Oh. And Sedna is now pregnant. Oh. And the father is so ashamed that he takes her to an island where she lives and only survives because the lead dog will swim out and bring her meat. And she has six children. And three of them are Inuit children. And three of them have long snouts and different ears. And it is said in some versions of this story, that Europeans and Inuit both descended from those children with the long snouts, making them all good hunters, and that is one of the only things they have in common. Oh, interesting. One of my other favorite versions of that story. I, oh, oh Tracy, it was so hard. Almost all of the versions of this story involve Sedna's own father cutting off her fingers mm -hmm. though in one version her father will not allow her back into the boat so they freeze off okay gross okay and i want to i want to specify that it, it often comes from the father kind of doing a bad thing and then going no i'm gonna go back and get her but that's not always the case sometimes he just takes her out and that's when he dumps her and in yet another version, there is no father figure. She's an orphan in a village, and people do not like her. So they take her out to dump her in the water. And the same finger situation happens. In many of the versions, she only loses her fingers, uh, which all become the animals of the sea. Sometimes they're cut off joint by joint. Mmm, I hate it. Thank you. <laughs> My other thing I can't do is losing body parts. Ugh. Sorry. I really loved the version of the fingers and the hands and then Forearm. the forearms yeah. because it, it goes in size with the different animals. Yeah. No, that, that, that does feel... I don't want to say it feels right. I hate it, but it, it makes sense. Oh, oh my gosh. How could I forget this? So another version of this story, Tracy? She's beautiful. The father's bringing suitors she's going no no left and right i don't like them nah. this is i pulled some of this into my story and she goes you know what you stink i'm gonna marry a dog oh and she chooses to marry just a regular dog not a man bird dog nope 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 that's hmm <laughs> there's interesting and then the last version i will mention because i again i can't express how excited I am about 
every version of this tale. So there's a version where the father's trying to throw her in the sea and cut off her fingers and it's not working. And he goes, ah, fine. And he pulls her back into the boat and they go home. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and she has no fingers and she's so mad that when her father is asleep, she has her dogs kill him. But it doesn't work. And he wakes up and he curses all three of them. His daughter, the dogs, and himself. And the ground opens up and swallows them all. And that's how she becomes goddess of the underworld. Power move to include yourself in that curse. I, I do not know how anyone who loves mythology ever sleeps on this story because it is so good. It is. It is full of all the classic familial fighting. You know, we got the blood. We got the animal men. We got just... <laughs> I'm too excited to analyze it. <laughs> it's It's got a strong woman. It's got that mother figure. It's got a bad dad. A lot of bad dads in mythology. It's got Bird Dog Man. Really, nothing's better than Bird Dog Man, so... <laughs> Well, the bird dog man comes from, you know, one way or another, she has a dog husband. But then when she gets put out on this island, the dog husband goes, no, now I'm a bird. And that's how he kind of helps her. I love I it. I just, I love. I love it. Seems like a loyal, loving husband. I love a trickster. So oh, I, I do. really, I do really liked the idea of this handsome man coming in. I, I originally was struck by the story because the dad goes... Yeah, fish is good. Take my daughter. Let me poison her for you. Yeah, he's like, I'm over it. Just here you go. Here you go. Just enjoy. I And in some stories, she's more bratty than others. Or willful, however you want to interpret yeah. it, depending on the telling. I like the idea of her being strong-willed. Me too. But that's because we're both it, fairly strong-willed people in a modern society, so we're allowed to think that way. And I realized in writing this... I said, Rowan, you're really going to cover a strong female lead again? Again? Yeah, you are. But uh -huh. I can't stop, won't stop. Can't stop, won't stop, shouldn't stop. I won't let you stop. <laughs> no matter the version of the story you were right, she is always wronged by people. And then the creatures that come from her plight are her great love. She cares for them. And I do like that when she's happy with people, she allows them to live. But it does mean sacrificing right. her, her own children. Yeah. I also included it just because I couldn't resist. But in some versions of the story, Sedna does get a fishtail. So she's basically a mermaid. I love that. Can you imagine? Oh, that's that would be a beautiful piece of art, like doing the, an art of her where like the arms cut off with the forearms and she's like a beautiful mermaid. But then like. Right. And the fact. OK, I specifically included the version of her losing up to her forearms because I only found that in one telling mm -hmm. and I loved it immediately. And I was interested in that kind of making her her swimming more fish-like. She mm -hmm. only has the limbs rather than the hands also. Uh, 
I have been thinking about this story <laughs> for months. Tracy. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you saved it for for this episode that we're being sponsored by. Uh, they're our sponsor episode. <laughs> by White Light Productions, Sea Glass Jewelry. I think this was the right time to tell the story. There's a piece of artwork, and I will endeavor to find the artist because I have not found who to attribute it to yet, but that doesn't mean that I won't. Mm -hmm. There is a piece of artwork that is kind of a portrait of Sedna, and the creatures of the sea are swimming in her hair. They almost kind of become her hair. It is gorgeous i have looked at this piece of artwork while trying to write other stories oh. because i think it's so inspiring that's Just amazing capturing kind of that mythological feeling right especially because she in some versions is just a woman she's just a human being on land who then becomes a goddess pretty rare in Stories we usually get a hold of. Right. Yeah, it's usually your divine born or whatever. So, you know, you want to be a goddess? Watch your fingers. That's all mm, I'm saying. Mm, ew, ew, ew. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. I love it. I love that. <sighs> you you guys know by now I'm here for a little horror. I'm here for a little strong women. I'm here for... I mean, I love strong women. Little... I just love strong women and limbs attached and happy things i like happy things but that's the thing about this story it's not the violence is not specifically horrific we're not living in that it's almost like just a, a practical piece of how we get to the end result of a vengeful ocean goddess it's just the way it is yeah it's in some ways, I think if you wanted to be intellectual about it, you could kind of say it's... Go, Tracy. Go. Intellect. It's somewhat of a metaphor for giving birth. Like, you're giving up a part of yourself to create something else. Oh, that's what gets you? Now you're making a face? <laughs> I just got yucked out by that one. I started making faces. Unbelievable. Which part of that grossed you out? The giving birth part? That's the part that got you? That's where you went, no, this is the line I won't cross? The apparently, <laughs> the totally normal, everyday line. Yeah, you know, that, that line that everyone has where they don't talk about or think about childbirth. Tracy, I'm here for a good time, not a childbirth time. Fair. I'm here what? for a good time, not a she even finger losing time. So Not a digit time? No, I'm not. No, no, stop winking at me. <laughs> Uh, guys, that creep out was decades in the making. I have learned what irks Tracy through decades of experience. All right. Okay, I'm going to stop being Sedna's hype man because it just sounds disingenuous at this point. I'm so excited about her. But it is, you know, I hate to say it, but it's rare that I encounter a goddess of this fabulousness that I have never heard of. Right. Not don't know about or, you know, need to learn. Just have flat out never heard of. Mm -hmm. um, the Sedna Epic Expedition is a very, very cool convergence of mythology, 
women's empowerment, and science. Tracy, I pull these things for you. No, I love all three of those things. I know. So, in the winter, off the coast of Norway, orcas and humpback whales come to feed off the large population of red herring that gather each winter, and you know I am openly obsessed with orcas. Yes. Utilizing their ship, MV Freya, the team hosts snorkeling and education opportunities to increase the understanding and conservation of the Arctic Circle's whale population. This team is largely made up and helmed by women. Before embarking, they will host a women's leadership program that focuses on women's growing representation in STEM fields, as well as centering the specific issues faced by Inuit women around the world. They are still actively recruiting team members for 2020. So Tracy, sign up. Oh my God, I'm going to quit my day job and make this my new day job. Are you kidding me? That is amazing. Oh my God. Okay. It's very cool. I am so passionate about women in STEM because I am a woman in STEM. And for this to combine that with talking about a culture that needs to be more widely understood and protecting the environment. Oh, my God. The only thing that sucks about it is it sounds cold. Very cold. I don't do cold well. Their website is lovely it's in our show notes and i will say on their homepage where they have their team members kind of in a little carousel of scrolling mm-hmm. pictures and names the first pictures that you see are entirely made up of women many inuit women who helm the project work on the project and you have to scroll scroll to another carousel to make men appear which I want to be clear. Men, some of y'all are doing great work. Keep it up. But for that to even exist right. is just so exciting. It's so exciting. Oh, my God. I want to go. I want to go. I want to go so bad. So if you are a woman, a non-binary human, I have a feeling if you like orcas, <laughs> they'll like you. So sign up. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Okay. Thank you for ending it on that beautiful note. That is the end of my just unabashed excitement. Tracy, what have you to bring me (laughs) about the Kraken? Yeah, I think you've guessed what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the Kraken. And the history of the Kraken is long and varied over many centuries. But it starts with an ancient Icelandic tale. So I'm going to give you a brief quote from that story. There were two sea monsters, one called Sea Reek and the other Heatherback. The Sea Reek is the biggest monster in the whole ocean. It swallows men and ships and whales too, and anything else around it. It stays underwater for days, and then it puts up its mouth and nostrils. And when it does, it never stays on the surface for less than one tide. That was a quote. From the Erevar Otter. The Erevar Otter is a story about the legendary hero of the same name, a name that means Arrow Odd or Arrow's Point. It was written by an anonymous Icelander in the 13th century. 
The Erver otter is perhaps the first documented written evidence of a creature resembling what we now call the kraken. Though in this text, it's called Hafgufa, and she is the mother of all sea monsters. She resembles an island and is only described as poking her nose up above the water, which resembles two large rocks. Okay. Hold up, hold my phone. Yeah, right out the gate. Are you telling me that the kraken was originally a mom? Yes. So, so yes and no, because some, so I'll get into the next part, but some, like, she was in the Erver Otter was described as the mother of all sea creatures. But in the next, after the Erver Otter uh, came out a scientific work called the Kunung Skudja which is Old Norse for King's Mirror. In this story, we get the real first description of the Kraken. So this text was written for the king's son, and it was written as a dialogue between a father and son, namely the king and his son. In the Kunningskudja, the father tells his son of a creature that inhabits the Icelandic seas. This creature can only be seen to be truly believed, but it was a massive fish that looked more like an island than a living creature. He notes that Hafgufa was rarely seen, but it was always seen in the same two places. Therefore, he declared there must be two of them, and they cannot reproduce, because the island would then be full of them. So one story says there's two, and they can't reproduce, and another story says there's one, and it's the mother of all sea monsters. Do we know what the heatherback is at all? All I got was that I think it's talking about one of two things. Either it's two separate monsters that, like, could be the Kraken and maybe, like, a colossal monster or something else. Or it is where the Konungskudja got the idea of there being two. And when they say fish... Are they saying what I think of as a fish, like a goldfish, the snack that smiles back? Or are we thinking of any creature that is in the sea? Great question. So, so many different depictions. I mean, one of them was like a giant fish with like lobster claws. Oh, cool. Others are the classic more cephalopod. In in the Erver Otter, it's literally just like... It looks like an island. So in that story, the main character is Erver Otter, and he sails past an island, and they're drawn to it, but then he decides not to go to it, and they later are like, oh, wow, thank God we didn't. That was actually Hafgufa, and we, and we didn't get pulled in. So I, that, in that text, it is only described as looking like an island because its little nose is popping up. Um, in the Konungskudja which I'm sure I'm pronouncing so, so wrong. It's not described much more in terms of what it looks like, although he goes into really great detail about how it hunts. Okay, but do you have that? Oh, of course I have that. Of course I yes! have that. Yes, okay. So he describes the feeding manner thusly. The Hafgufa would belch up food, attracting nearby oh. fish who would come close to the massive creature. Once enough fish came by, the creature would then just close his mouth, and devour them all at once. Mm-hmm. Me with M&Ms. Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> so keep that in mind, the idea of there being something in the water. God, stories f about the ocean are the coolest because 
even you saying the words, keep in mind, something in the water is, it's yeah, scary. It's scary. It's spooky. I, oh, yes. Listen, I don't want to mess with anything in the ocean. Even looking up pictures of stuff that like for this was kind of just like, ugh, things in the ocean are gross. <laughs> but moving forward from the 1300s in Iceland to 1735. This is when Carl Linnaeus included the kraken as part of his attempt to classify all living creatures. In his early edition of System Naturae, he has an entry for the kraken, in which he describes it as a cephalopod and named it Microcosmus marinus. But this entry was later omitted from the book entirely after Linnaeus expressed, and I am paraphrasing here, Cool monster, bro, but I haven't seen it, so I'm not including it in my super scientific book anymore. I would never have guessed that you were paraphrasing if you hadn't told me that they didn't say it, bro. Bestiaries are the best, and it bums me out when the cool creatures get excluded, but it excites me when they get included again because we actually find them. Yeah. So a fun fact for you. I got to hold and look at one of these first editions of System Naturae when I was in college. So a friend of mine at the time worked in the library at the Natural History Museum, and the librarians were kind enough to take me and our friend Brooke into their rare books room. So in that, in that room, I got to see a first edition of a Linnaeus, as well as a book supposedly bound in human skin. This was a practice called anthropodermic bibliophagy and whether or not the book that i got to hold which i i was wearing gloves <laughs> but uh whether or not it was actually bound in human skin i'm not sure because it's pretty rare to discover it truly being bound in human skin um i like to think it was because that's super cool okay <laughs> someone needs to l let me out of the box because i I'm actually crying hearing that you have to touch a first edition. Yes, it. Oh, I was geeking out the whole time. It was so cool. And then the friend who worked at the museum told the museum's entomologist that I love bugs. And that poor guy got so excited before I had to tearfully like tell him, like, please don't show me bugs. They're my biggest fear. I literally ran crying out of the butterfly room and then gleefully held a book bound in human skin. Oh, my God. So there's a lot to talk about in the ethical practices of binding books in so human skin. So the way skin. they described it to me was the one they had was supposedly a master requested his apprentice bind his work, <gasps> like his own work in his skin. And then it was like passed down. Oh, my God. That's so punk rock. Right? Oh, my, okay. We live in a world which, for all of its faults, and there are many, there are libraries and people who devote their lives to taking care of books that are so old you have to touch them with gloves on, yes. that have information in them that are fiction and the stuff of fantasy that people thought were just history. I it mm. it was a day I'll never forget. It was one of the coolest experiences I have, and it was just so fun because they were so passionate and just like 
they could see that we were so passionate. I'm crying about books, about a thing that didn't happen to me. Please talk about okay, so ocean now. <laughs> to quote an article from Wired, perhaps the most detailed description of the Kraken comes from the Danish historian Erik Pontoppidan in his Natural History of Norway from 1755. He notes that the beast is round, flat, and full of arms or branches, and is the largest and most surprising of all the animal creation. He cites various fishermen who unanimously affirm, and without the least variations in their account, that if you row out several miles into the Norwegian Sea in the summer, you're in serious danger of falling victim to the kraken. So that's the first real description we get. Round, flat, full of arms and branches. Mm. You know when we see old black and white photos of fishermen holding up manta rays the size of my first apartment mm -hmm. and you know you think oh wow things in the ocean used to be quite a lot bigger before we started fishing with dragnets and breaking everything is it possible that maybe the big daddy squids were bigger daddy squids <laughs> bigger mommy squids <laughs> no it was a kraken <laughs> No, it's not possible at all. It can only be a kraken. <laughs> no. I really, I don't, I haven't read ahead. I'm so sorry if I mess up. <laughs> While some sailors claim the most dangerous part of running into a kraken is the whirlpool that it leaves in its wake, many tell a similar tale of the creature stretching out its many arms up to the mast of the ship wrapping them around the entire ship and dragging it down, sailors and all, to be devoured under the sea. In 1802, Pierre-Denis de Montefort, God, I hope I got that even somewhat close, who was a French malacologist, mollusk studies, he loved mollusks, he decided he recognized the existence of two types of giant octopus. In his Historie naturelle générale et particulière des mollusques, which I think means general natural history and particulars of mollusks. <laughs> I'm looking to Rowan here. That's she's, about right to me. She speaks some French and she's dressed French, so French is like my weakness. I speak the kind of French that when I am in France, which weirdly happens to be kind of often, I am trying so hard and still speaking so badly that nice French humans take pity on yeah. me. Like, that's where I'm at, Tracy. I can't help you. <laughs> histoire, histoire naturelle, générale et particulière. I would say histoire naturelle, générale et particulière des mollusques. Thank you. I knew if I said it wrong enough times, you'd come in and help out. So in that, he claims that the first type of octopus he discovered was called the Kraken octopus. And uh, that's the one described by Norwegian and American whalers. But he said there's a second larger type called the Colossal octopus. And this one reportedly attacked a sailing vessel, sailing vessel from St. Malo off the coast of Angola. But... He also tried to push this later on with another shipwreck and say it was the Colossal Octopus. And survivors from that shipwreck were like, it, it was a hurricane. And so then he kind of got like his reputation destroyed. Nope, it's Sea Reek and Heatherback. Those are the rules. Those are the rules. 
So that's your background on the history of the Kraken. I'm now going to tell you my story before we go into more modern times. But for my story this week, I was inspired by two things. The fact that the Kraken was once referred to as the mother of sea monsters. And a song by one of my favorite musical artists, Jonathan Colton, called I Crush Everything, which is about the Kraken trying to give hugs. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yes. Jonathan Colton is... So Casey, who you heard on our... um, episode two weeks ago for Haunted California, she introduced me to him and we saw him in concert. She's been obsessed with him for years. He does the most amazing comedy music, but also some of it's genuinely very heartfelt. And he wrote the music for Portal. So, you know, Gladys songs? Yeah. Written by Jonathan Colton. Oh. And he has a cruise every year called the Joko Cruise. And a lot of famous like comedians and podcasters and musicians will go on it and then people can go on it. Wait, Tracy, we're podcasters with a sponsor, White Light Productions, Sea Glass Jewelry, so maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I know the McElroy brothers typically go on the Joko cruise. So it's it's a dream of mine, but more importantly, it's a dream of Casey's to go on the Joko cruise. We can be a team of three. Okay. Should we I love ever. it. It sounds good. Okay. So that is what inspired my story this week. I will now jump into my story. First and foremost, I am a mother. They say all sea monsters are my children, but I take offense to that term, monsters. My children are not monsters. They are beautiful creatures living their lives as best they can. I care for all of my children, and I want them all to be safe and happy. Which is why I cannot understand these silly Foolish children of mine who float so close to the surface. They ride above the safety of the water like they are asking for death to welcome them into its embrace. As a mother, it pains me to see them so pointlessly risking their lives by choosing such a dangerous path. I know they are my children. I can tell it by their size. They are long and rounded with bellies that stick below the surface of the water and long, straight arms that stick up from their backs. They have smaller creatures that seem to live on them as well. These creatures I too will care for, as any friend of my children is a friend of mine. I admit... Sometimes I may be a bit rough or a bit harsh, but I'm only doing what is best for my children. When I see them gliding carelessly across the top of the water, heedless of the danger it presents, I can get a bit frustrated. After all, the sun is a dangerous thing, the air outside the water is toxic, and who knows what monsters live above the surface. So when I see one of my children choosing to be so foolish, I rush to their aid. I swim to the surface and, yes, maybe I say a harsh word or two, but it's only to let them know that I care about their safety. I'll swim beside them for a bit and they usually ignore me. So then I'll pop my head up to see what they're up to. Sometimes this is all it takes and they come right over to me, but... Oftentimes, they ignore this as well. That's when I take matters into my own hands. Or tentacles, as it were. 
I come up out of the water to let them know that I mean business, and I wrap my arms around their body. I want them to feel how much I care when I hug them, but also that I am not playing any more silly games. They're usually stiff and unrelenting, but so are many of my children. I suppose it's a trait they got from me. Often, the tiny creatures that live on them will bite me, but I don't mind. They're too primitive to know what I'm doing is for the best. These are merely parasites on the backs of my children, nothing to concern myself with. So I let them bite and claw at me as I hug my child and start to bring it back down to the safety of the water. I drag them down under the surface of the water, pulling them, sometimes against their will, back to the safety of the ocean's depths. They may not appreciate it now, but children rarely understand their parents when they're young. As I drag my child deep, deep into the depths with me, I remind them that I'm only doing what's best. Like I said, I am a mother, and I love all my children, even the foolish ones with little parasites that bite. And I will never stop trying to keep them safe, even from themselves. I love that so much. I love that so many. <laughs> Tracy. Rowan. Just the ideal little big old cracking mama. She just wants you being silly. Why are you floating up there? It's not safe. Come here. Come on. Little annoying things on your back. You got little <laughs> parasites. It's fine. You can have them. But they bite me. <laughs> I also was particularly excited when you said the air outside of the water is toxic. Yeah, it would be if you're like an ocean-dwelling creature. It's like, don't exactly. go it Don't. It's not safe. It's just such an ingenious way to flip everything upside down, to imagine you know, the kraken descending yeah. and to pull something up even. Yeah. <laughs> So, I, I, that's, that's your mama Kraken protecting you. She's just trying to help. We're going to need Kraken mom art, Trace. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you want a, a quick etymology lesson? Yeah. All right. Sure. The English word Kraken is taken from the modern Scandinavian languages, originating from the old Norse word kraki. In both Norwegian and Swedish, Kraken is the definite form of kraki, Crockay. Guys, I'm sorry. But that is a word designating an unhealthy animal or something twisted. Kraken is also an old Norwegian word for octopus and an old euphemism in Swedish for whales used when the original word became taboo as it was believed it could summon the creatures. Mm. Which reminds me of, uh, you know how, do you know the, the history of the word for bear? No. Basically, we don't know what the original word for bear is. Bear just means brown creature because the original word they thought could summon a bear. So they started calling it bear or whatever the word used to be saying, like the brown creature or like the brown one because they were so afraid of summoning one. And then we lost the original word to history. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So that's what made me think of this where, it, you know, Kraken in old is an old euphemism in Sweden for whales because the original word was taboo. So as you've probably figured out by now, 
The Kraken was most likely inspired by sightings of the giant squid. In 1853, a giant cephalopod was found stranded on a Danish beach, and it was identified as a giant squid, Architeuthis ducks. And thus we learned that the kraken was actually a giant squid. To quote an article about the giant squid, After 150 years of research into the giant squid that inhabits all of the world's oceans, there is still much debate as to whether they represent a single species Or as many as 20. What? Right? It's starting to be thought that they might, this isn't from that same article, but it's starting to be thought that it might just be one creature and that it's actually, people are shocked, there's almost no genetic differences between them all over the world. And what they think is that when they're young, they are like blown around by the strong ocean currents and have spread all over the world without much genetic diversity. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, could be a single species as many as 20. The largest Architeuthis recorded uh, ever reaches 18 meters in length, which I asked our good friend Seb, who is the mod of our Discord and uh, was born in Canada and lived in Australia and is pretty familiar with both systems of measurements, and he tells me that it's upwards of 60 feet. So the largest recorded reached upwards of 60 feet in length, which included uh, the very long pair of tentacles. But the vast majority of specimens are much smaller than that. Uh, but the giant squid's eyes are the largest in the animal kingdom and are crucial in the dark depths it inhabits, up to 1,100 meters deep, perhaps even reaching 2,000 meters. Its eyes are the size of dinner plates. Which is magnificent. And I've seen mm. pictures, and I don't mean to be a stinker, but they're not that big. I mean, okay, they're big enough that if I saw one in the water, I'd be terrified, obviously. But they're not so big that if I were on a ship, even, say, a large wooden vessel, that I would think that they could fully eat the ship. They couldn't fully eat the ship, but they could wrap their arms around it. Like, they could get a good grip on there. Not not the smaller ones now, but if we're going with that, like creatures could have been bigger back in the day Mm, mm -hmm. or if you just saw one if you just saw the body of it i mean it's believed that sailors might have seen the body of it and then been like this is a way to keep them on their toes and to make sure that only the bravest people go out sailing i'm talking a big game for someone who's sitting on dry land but it's not big enough it's not big enough pretty big babe they are pretty big (laughs) i am five feet the largest one recorded is 12 of me long that's not small <laughs> that's not but, small i mean whales also massive you could crawl through the arteries of you know the heart yeah, so fun fact so despite the creature's size or lack thereof i guess if you're you know, <laughs> rowan um, it is far from the most frightening predator in the ocean so to quote wired it's the beak that reveals what the giant squid spends its life trying to avoid the sperm whale The stomachs of dead sperm whales can be positively packed with the beaks of giant squids. Mm -hmm. The only bit that the whale has a hard time digesting. It's also not uncommon to come across living sperm whales with circular scars around their mouth, the telltale signs of battles with enormous squid 
desperately flailing their arms and digging into their foes with their serrated suckers. Yes, yes, this is the battle of the gods I want. Yes, there's so much cool art of, uh, like scientific art of giant squids fighting sperm whales. People are mere parasites, Kraken versus Moby Dick, let's go. Yes. So there is a creature called the colossal squid, which is even bigger than the giant squid. Yes! But it's much (laughs) lazier than the giant squid with um, up to 600 times less energy. So the giant squid is a little bit more aggressive and it's much more agile. So 2005 was an exciting year for giant squid fans all over the world when Japanese researchers T. Kubadera and K. Mori filmed a live giant squid in its natural habitat 900 meters deep in the North Pacific. This showed that the creature was fast, agile, and able to use its tentacles to capture prey. To quote BBC... The key to this, according to the team member Edith Witter of the Ocean Research and Conservation Association in Fort Pierce, Florida, was stealth. She suspected that the electric thrusters that power most submersible cameras was scaring away the squid. So instead, she came up with a contraption called Medusa, a battery-operated camera attached to a lure. Medusa emitted a blue light designed to mimic the light produced by a crown jellyfish called Atolla. When this jellyfish comes under attack, it uses its light to lure any bigger creatures lurking nearby to swoop in and attack the attacker. Ooh. Yeah. While some people have theorized that the mythical kraken attacks were actually giant squids mistaking ships for whales, this was probably unlikely. Um, Giant squids live very deep down in the ocean and would be unlikely to travel up to the surface, even though they can do it. Uh, but they seem to prefer to only just attack their direct prey instead of, you know, starting fights with whales. Which they apparently lose fairly oh, often. They very much so. Very much so. It's, it's, they are prey to sperm whales. Much more violent are the Humboldt squid, which are known mm. as red devils because of the color they flash when it, they're in attack mode. They are more aggressive than the giant squid and have been known to attack humans. However... While the Humboldt squid is clearly dangerous, even at maximum length, they're barely bigger than a human. Mm-hmm. So they don't pose a serious threat unless you happen to be in the water with them. And they certainly couldn't drag fishermen from boats, as the Kraken legend claims. Uh, I'm so frustrated. I want, I want, Tracy, a mom Kraken. You have a terrible tiny little creature, and by tiny I mean the size of us, that is nasty and will attack you. But then you have creatures the size of the kraken. I mean, the colossal squid is huge. huge. It's just lazy, which is great. If it's going to be that huge, I'd rather it be lazy. Have you seen the video, or not the video, pardon me. I think it was a photograph that was faked of was supposedly a colossal, colossal squid washed up on the beach with the crowd around it. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. I remember when that came out, and for the fractionist of fractional seconds, I was so excited. I know. <sighs> okay, so things were bigger and badder back before people got more and pollutier. And let's say that the 
Kraken doesn't even need to attack a ship. It could just wash up on the shore for people to be horrified. Yup. Because there's not, we don't even have guns yet. This is scary. Right. Everything's made of trees. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And if, and if it did come to the surface and it didn't attack you, just seeing it could be enough to tell the stories. I mean, think about you see it, you want to tell a story, but it attacked you, but you survived. Now you're cooler. Then that spirals because then that other guy survived a Kraken attack and you saw a Kraken, but it didn't attack you. But now it attacked you. And I've also heard, though I don't know how conclusive it is, that many creatures are preferring deeper depths because humans create so much sound on the surface mm -hmm. that is awful. Yes, I've heard that as well. I'm going to hold out hope. If there can be giant squids attacking sperm whales, I, I live in a world in which even deeper and scarier, there can be even gianter squids yes. waiting for us. I know it's misguided. Let me have it. I'll give it to you. I'm Tracy, you did such a good job. You gave me the science I wanted, the mom energy I didn't know I needed from a sea monster. <laughs> well, I got to give it to you for giving me the coolest babe ever, the coolest fish lady, mother of sea creatures. We went mother of sea creatures this week, and I love it, and I'm here for it. All right. So, folks, we've been talking about the ocean and the scary, multi-tentacled, and finger-lacking gods that live in it. The irony, though. I know. Before we wrap up our episode, we wanted to quickly talk about conservation. White Light Productions' green statement, which is on their website, seaglass.us, inspired us to do a bit of research, as we tend to do, on this podcast. Only sometimes. Don't let her fool you. <laughs> we do a lot of research. So much research. So we got to talking about ways that those of us who don't live near the coast or interact with the ocean on the daily can still help to protect it. So this research predictably brought us to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch which is actually two separate masses trapped off the coast of Japan and California within a sort of vortex created by ocean currents. Though much of it is not visible from the surface due to the sinking of larger debris and the accumulation of microplastics, it is but one admittedly remarkable example of the way the behavior of humans is detrimental to the seas. According to National Geographic, about 54% of the debris in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch comes from land-based activities in North America and Asia. The remaining 20% of debris in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch comes from boaters, offshore oil rigs, and large cargo ships that dump or lose debris directly into the water. The majority of this debris, about 705,000, thousand tons is fishing nets. More unusual items, such as computer monitors and Legos, come from dropped shipping containers, end quote. As one way to encourage each other to protect the world's oceans, we're asking you to join us in examining ways we can eliminate purchasing plastic from our daily lives. And of course, this is an ongoing effort. We all recognize that. 
my choice this week for eliminating plastics, I finally made it to the end of my massive, massive container of laundry detergent. And I actually chose to go with a company called True Earth that makes laundry detergent strips. They're basically like large sticks of gum mm-hmm. in in terms of their appearance. And you just peel one off and you drop it in your laundry. And that solution works particularly well for me because I live in an apartment. I don't have laundry in my unit. And having those is a great way for me to work with having to carry laundry thither and yon, but also... They come in a paper envelope and Mm -hmm. eliminating the plastic, eliminating the gas it takes to ship that liquid far and wide is a huge thing that we can all do to help literally save the world. Yes. The (laughs) last one I'll recommend is another one that I have called Guppy Friend. None of these are sponsored, by the way. It's called Guppy Friend. And basically, the... There are a ton of microplastics in clothing, especially things like leggings or anything with a stretch material, and they get trapped in your dish or your your washing machine and then get washed into the water supply. And so what you do with Guppy Friend is you put all your clothes in there and then you put your clothes in the washer and it traps all those microplastics and you take them and then you can get rid of the microplastics and they're not in the water supply. So... Guppy Friend is what I use. I also love reusable sponges. You boil them once a week to get them clean. I also use un-napkins, so reusable cloths that I also Mm -hmm. wash once a week. And don't feel like you have to do it all at once. You don't have to go to a full zero-waste lifestyle to start doing something and making an impact. So find something that works for you. Exactly. And I think that it's worth a couple extra bucks to make those choices. But luckily, it's 2020. And some of the most eco-conscious things don't cost more. Guess what this segue is? We're going back to White Light Productions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We have been talking about daily little changes. Paper towels, mostly laundry. Apparently, that's where Tracy and I live. But Luxury items, the things that we give to one another to celebrate are some of the easiest things to switch over to a greener way of life. I truly believe that um, sometimes it's the things that we don't have to use on the daily that it's just the easiest to enjoy, frankly, especially when someone has really thought about you when they get it. And Tracy will tell you I'm kind of on a personal mission to shop small, shop handmade yep. in America. That's another really good way to stay green because it's it's staying local. And when things care for the environment, I don't feel guilty enjoying them. Yes. So getting a sponsorship with a company that down to its packaging cares about the environment was guys we keep saying sponsor because we're just so excited i know Um, we're so excited genuinely excited truly deeply giddy because we're a tiny baby podcast and frankly we don't have to do anything we don't want (laughs) to (laughs) do so 
Again, this was the first of a three-episode arc sponsored mm-hmm. by Sea Glass by White Light Productions. Their intention was to partner with us and share some stories that make us all feel excited about the world's oceans, about our time at the coast. We're going into the colder months. So definitely check out their website, seaglass.us. That's S-E-A-G-L-A-S-S dot U-S. And use our code WFFALL10 for 10% off. Because we have codes. We have sponsors. We have codes. You can still use the diamond jewelry code as well. That is still available. So we got codes. We got codes on codes on codes. Really just the <laughs> two. But go check out White Light Production Sea Glass Jewelry. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Rowan. Tell me something good. <laughs> My something good this week is super easy. So I had, as you guys know, a rough couple weeks. Um, and one day in the mail this week... A package arrived from Rowan. (laughs) She sent me a diamond care package, you guys. I'm not kidding. I I did do that. (laughs) We don't just talk the talk. She walked the walk. And it was perfect. And she was saying that Libby basically photographed the entire store for her so that she could pick out exactly Mm -hmm. what she wanted to give me. And it was amazing, and it was, like, spooky and had jewelry <laughs> and everything that I love. It was very autumnal and botanical, and um, it made my whole week. I literally texted her in all caps. I couldn't believe it. I was screaming. It was amazing, and it made me so happy, and I felt so loved. So that was my something good. We get to meet such cool people doing this, and... I just want to spoil you stinking rotten so you don't forget that you like me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I could never forget that. But, you know, the present was very lovely. Plus, I can't hug you, which just crushes my heart. So I have to to send you basically hugs. (laughs) I relate to that. I sent you a care package under the guise of mailing you one small thing. I was like, this is my my chance. (laughs) (laughs) So, Rowan. Yes. Tell me something good. Mm, hey. So, many humans might know about me that I am building my first desktop PC. Mm-hmm. And I want to stipulate, when I say building, there are people that are much more intense than me. Like, down to the screw building it. I oh, yeah. 100% started with something that already existed. I'm just... Oh, absolutely. I mean... Listen, so did I. Okay, I'm her IT friend who's the least helpful person in the world when it comes to her building a PC. I sent her to one of my friends. <laughs> and, yeah, I just don't want anyone in the computer community coming after me. That's no not... one's going to come after you. No one cares. Your lovely friends were a huge help to me. My streamer friends were I mean, a huge they're help. your friends, too, at this point. Like, they're your friends, too. So. Ooh, ooh, my little heart. Ow. Okay. And her heart grew three sizes that day. Because I because I said they're your friends, they're your friends too. They invite you to our Halloween parties. You're one of the gang now. You're we suck people in like you wouldn't believe. You're in there. You're in there, bud. Okay. Well, my something good was that <laughs> my dual monitor setup came. And Oh, dual monitors are the best. <laughs> Getting to do research where I have the research on one screen and the writing on the other screen is a game changer. <laughs> I'm going to take it up a notch for you. Here's what I do. I do split screen. I have my document on one side of one screen, my research on another side of one screen, my Discord on the other side of one screen, and then 
my Spotify. So I've got four things open at once. And that is how I do my research, which is why you guys get a lot of Discord messages while I'm researching. Wow. Uh, because it's my way of taking breaks. Well, until just mere mere days ago, I was not set up for that, but now you can do it and you can you can experience what that is like. I hunted to find monitors that have the stands that raise and lower the monitor. Yep. I I know you can buy Vesa stands, whatever, Vesa mounts, pardon me, but I found it. It's amazing. I'm a real girl. Um, I am so happy for you. That is so exciting. But also, guys, I just got friends. So on that note, (laughs) (laughs) we have sponsors. We have friends. We're a podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming to our podcast. Well, genuinely, thank you so much for joining us. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we will see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.